Welcome to The Sugar Science. This is Monica Wesley, and today we are talking to Andrew Sass at Ohio State University. He's part of a group who just put out a, a brand new paper, A New Neutrophil Subset Promotes CNS Neuron Survival and Axon Regeneration in Nature Immunology, came out at the end of October. Really fascinating paper. Thank you, Andrew, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I just wondered if you could give our audience a little bit of, you know, your background, your credentials, so that people can sort of know where you're coming from. Yeah, so um, I did my MD and PhD at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston, and that's where I first got involved in neuroinflammation and neurology and neuroscience. I then went on to the University of Michigan to do my neurology residency. And once I completed my neurology residency at the University of Michigan, I stayed there to do both a clinical fellowship and a research fellowship. I did a clinical fellowship in sports neurology and traumatic brain injury. And then also at that time applied for and received funding through the NIH R25 program through the NINDS to join the laboratory of Dr. Benjamin Segal. Dr. Segal is a neuroimmunologist and multiple sclerosis specialist, and he and I partnered together to look at the role of inflammation and immunomodulation in traumatic neuronal injuries. And I stayed and did a three-year fellowship in his research fellowship in his laboratory, mm -hmm. and then was able to successfully apply for and get a uh, NIHK grant through the mm -hmm. National Eye Institute to look at immune responses to promote axon regeneration and restore visual. Very cool. Yeah. You bring a lot of very strong background to this paper. And let's talk a little bit about the whole idea of finding a new neutrophil subset. So I think it's so cool that you guys did this. And, you know, can you walk us through how this happened? Yeah. So I, th I think it begins by telling you a little bit about the model system that we work in. And so when you think of inflammation in the central nervous system, we think of it as generally detrimental. So most people think of inflammation as a bad thing that contributes to ongoing secondary neuronal injury, that we think of production of reactive oxygen species and pro-inflammatory cytokines that are neurotoxic and things like that. And so that is the general thing that most most scientists, neurologists, neurosurgeons think about when we think about inflammation um, with acute trauma. Within that system, though, there are certain models in which inflammation is beneficial. And so we wanted to understand mechanistically at the cellular level why in some models inflammation is beneficial instead of detrimental as the general thought. And so the model we chose was the optic nerve crush injury to start with. And this model was initially designed by uh, Dr. Benowitz at Harvard. And this model is really interesting because he found that you can promote inflammation after a crush injury to the optic nerve by injecting zymosin into the eyeball. Hmm. And zymosin is a fungal wall extract. And you think that that's, that would be detrimental. But this sterile inflammatory response recruits huge numbers of myeloid cells, which are neutrophils and monocytes and macrophages into the area of the injury. And then we get axons that regenerate. And this work was pioneered by Dr. Benowitz. It's an established model in which lots of laboratories across the country look at immune-mediated axon regeneration. But no one had what the cells were and why they were doing that. And so we started with asking, well, what are the cells in the eye? 
And when we did that, we found we did some very detailed flow cytometry to isolate cells. We found that the predominant cell that responds to this crush injury and this injection was the neutrophil, and then monocytes were the second most common. And when you think about neutrophils, not only was that very surprising, but everyone in the immune world thinks of neutrophils as generally pro-inflammatory. And so capitulate the idea that all these neutrophils are causing more injury. What happens if we get rid of the neutrophils? And so that, that was the first question we asked. So once we identified that these, these neutrophils were the predominant, neutrophils were the predominant cell in the eye, we asked, well, if we block them, would that mean that we're going to get better regeneration because we blocked them? Or does that mean we're going to get worse regeneration because maybe the predominant cell is the most important cell and we didn't know at the time. Yeah. And we, we blocked the neutrophils using an, an neutralizing antibody to anti-CXCR2. Um, CXCR2 is the chemokine receptor that is responsible for conventional mature neutrophil chemotaxis to an area of injury or inflammation. And then we did the same thing again. We looked at the amount of regeneration, and then we did some very detailed flow cytometry over a time course to look at the cells that were responding. And we got two very surprising results, which is when we blocked the neutrophils, we got more regeneration. But when we looked in the eyes at the cells that were responding, we were still finding lots of neutrophils in the eyes. Hmm. And so then the, the natural question is, well, what's different about them? And so the, a lot of the work in the first half of this paper is now characterizing the difference between a conventional mature neutrophil that we think of as being pro-inflammatory and the presence of this different neutrophil that had, was clearly enriching uh, axon regeneration and promoting recovery more so than previously was. And so in terms of that, you know, cell, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit stem cell-y, right? <laughs> I mean, what, what is it? Can you, can you talk more about what it, what's its identity? Absolutely. So yeah, the stem cell is a, a, a good description. Uh, we use <laughs> Im, Im, immature neutrophil. And so what happens is that when you block conventional neutrophils, the neutrophils that are already cir- circulating in your blood, the bone marrow then releases immature neutrophils. And this happens in different types of infection models, and it happened in our model also. Um, These immature neutrophils have ring nuclei. They're also called banded neutrophils in other models. And they're immature, and so they haven't fully matured, and so they're a little more plastic in their ability to respond to stimuli. And when they circulate into the blood and then move to the area of the injury, their response at the site of the injury is uh, more pleomorphic. They can be manipulated to uh, a different phenotype. And so they have this immature morphology by visualization. And when we look at them by flow cytometry and look at their proteins of maturation, they show markers of immaturity. The marker of maturity is uh, Ly6G. So the higher the Ly6G expression, the more mature the neutrophil is. So these these neutrophils had low Ly6G expression compared to mature neutrophils that we found in other models of injury. They were also CD101 positive. So CD101 is a marker of immature neutrophils. So neutrophils express CD101 while they're still in the bone marrow, but when they migrate out of the bone marrow in, into circulation, they downregulate CD101 and don't express it anymore. Mm-hmm. And these neutrophils continued to express CD101 even though they were, had moved out of the bone marrow and into circulation. And then they, 
they express these markers of alternative activation, which is a little bit different. And so you can be mature or immature. You can also be traditionally activated or alternatively activated. And so it wasn't just that they were immature. They also had an activation state. So they, they were able to do things. And alternative neutrophil activation was actually first described by uh, Dr. Friedlander in cancer, um, where he had noted that in tumors, there were some neutrophils that had an immature look that secreted, that were arginase positive and secreted TGF and um, IL-4 and seemed to suppress immune cell function. Um, and so we started with that, with that idea was, well, are these cells alternatively activated? So we looked for those markers and it turned they do express high levels of arginase, which isn't normally seen in neutrophils. And they expressed high levels of IL-4 and IL-4 receptor, indicating that they could be alternatively activated. They expressed TGF-beta, they um, secreted growth factors. And so those were all things that we don't see if you just took mature neutrophils out of your blood and then did PCR and looked at their transcriptome. So the injury occurred, the bone marrow released these set of neutrophils, they migrated to the site. And once they're there with their, you know, unusual cocktail of um, growth factors and, and unusual display of proteins that they've got going on, what happens then? So they, they do exactly what you said, which is that they migrate to that area and they do two things. So one, they, when we look at them visually in the eye, so if we take the eyes and we look at where the neutrophils are, they embed themselves at the inner interface of the retinal ganglion cells, which are the cells that are injured in the optic nerve. Um, and so they're clearly directly interacting with the cells at the retinal ganglion cell layer. And so we see activation of astrocytes and microglia. And so they're interacting with those glial cells. And then they're also secreting growth factors. And that was the really surprising thing was through a series of experiments using neurons in plates, uh, we looked at whether or not these neurons directly interacted with the or these neutrophils directly interacted with these neurons, or were they secreting factors? And it turned out that they are both directly interacting with the neurons or their support cells, and they're also secreting factors that in the absence of the cells, we could take the factors alone and get the same beneficial response in promoting recovery and neuroprotection. So when you talked about using this cocktail of um, milieu, basically, or the cells plus their milieu, in MS, how does that work? There are a couple different ways in which this works. And so one way that this could be beneficial is that we identified growth factors secreted by these neutrophils that when we block them, so nerve growth factor, NGF, and insulin-like growth factor, IGF-1, that when we block them with neutralizing antibodies, it inhibited the regeneration that we saw from, these, uh, from the presence of these alternatively activated neutrophils. And so we did a couple of different things, which is that we both inhibited the cells, but we then took two pathways. You could have a cellular therapy where we could isolate these neutrophils and transfer them kind of like a stem cell transplant or a uh, autologous cell transplant. Um, and so we take them out of the mice and transfer them into other mice that had been injured. And we found that we could adoptively transfer these cells into other animals and promote the same recovery indicating that there could be a line for a cellular-based therapy in which we use these cells, isolate these cells, purify them, make sure that they're the right cell, and then transfer them into other animals. And then we also took the growth factors alone, and we packaged them into nanoparticles, and you could inject the growth factor alone, and the presence of the growth factor in the absence of the cell 
was also able to stimulate regeneration. So NGF on its own or insulin-like growth factor on its own was able to stimulate it. What is really interesting is the combination effect. It's one of the great things about these cells is that they do lots of things simultaneously. And so yeah. the presence of the growth factors. But we found that when we removed the cells and did the growth factors alone, you would have to combine them to get the same type of synergistic effect. And so there's more than one effect that's going on that you know could lead to therapeutic potential. I mean, it'd be, it'd be very interesting. It seems like there's a lot of room for in- inquiry where you could test out its generative properties or, you know, its healing properties in different injury states throughout the body. So, I mean, if you think about beta cell injury that occurs during autoimmune uh, type 1 diabetes, we'd be curious if you could see if they could hone in on that area. It's essentially, you know, it's not neurological like you guys have been looking at, but they're, they're, it's, it's relatable to n- the neurology picture, I guess, with the fact that a lot of research has come out recently where the innervation of the islets has been called into question. And I mean, could you talk a little bit or hypothesize a little bit about whether or not that might be an interesting model system to explore? Yeah, so that is a really good question. And those are the types of looking at other models of neuronal injury and different types of neuronal injury is an important thing that we want to look at. And so it's easiest in the model we've already worked with because there's a focal site of injury with a focal site in which the neurons, the cell bodies are at that we can focus on trying to get our cell to or injecting directly to that area. And so it's easiest to translate when you, when you can point to something like, okay, where is this innervation coming from? And it would be great to be able to apply that. And I, I would hypothetically say that it could be beneficial because if we could get these cells to the area of innervation around the islet cells where those uh, nuclei are, then we, the presence of growth factors uh, maintains neuronal viability. It maintains axonal stability. Th- those growth factors are essential for maintaining the structure and integrity of uh, neurons as they signal. And so in diabetes, due to the injuries, uh, the metabolic injuries, due to the presence of the high sugars, you get the breakdown of the, the integrity of the axon membrane. And so having cells that in, in, enrich the amount of growth factors and, and uh, support that is given to those neurons may keep them alive longer or give them an opportunity to maintain structure through an injury, such as you know a, a metabolic stress that you see in diabetes. Can you comment a little bit on how this could be used sort of uh, therapeutically? Is it scalable, this discovery? Right now, we think it is scalable. And so we've begun work. Um, so we started with these localized injections, but you, the question of can we get these cells into other models and something like diabetes where you have injuries to many different nerves in, di- in different parts of the body, um, we've begun injecting these neutrophils IV and then tracking where they go in the body. And we're exploring the idea of, is there a more translational way to give these cells and get them to where you want to go? And so there are two lines of research that are actively going on is, how do I hone them to specifically where I want them to go in the injury? Can, can I actually modulate and recruit them to an area without going in and manipulating it through surgical methods? So could I inject them into a mouse and get them where I want them? Um, and then also how long do they last once they're there? How long are they in circulation? Where do they go? What else could they possibly doing? Making sure that there aren't, you know, detrimental side effects that I haven't thought of yet. 
Yeah. And it is a curious, like if they're coming to this area of injury and helping the area heal, how well do they do their job? I guess, you know, are they able to completely heal the injury? Do they need backup forces? I mean, is that something you guys are looking at too, to sort of manipulate this system? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the uniqueness of this is that we, this is a neutrophil, which as, as I had said, is generally not thought of as a healing cell, but there's a great amount of literature in monocytes, another myeloid cell that they are thought of to be anti-inflammatory pro healing recovery. And so we, we have seen that the presence of these neutrophils does recruit this anti-inflammatory monocyte to the area of injury also. Monocytes are also longer living cells than neutrophils. Neutrophils have a relatively short half-life living only you know, a few days at a time, and then they tend to die off. Whereas monocytes will live for weeks, they will convert to tissue macrophages and embed themselves in an area for a longer period of time. And so uh, I believe that the recruitment of the monocytes and the presence of this anti-inflammatory monocyte is an important aspect of perpetuating the initial recovery phase into a long, longer recovery phase. So yeah, so for the longer, longer phase recovery, you need the, the combo, really. Yeah. And so what's next for your laboratory? I mean, it sounds like you're going to be going through and really defining the activation of this uh, neutrophil and, you know, wh- what it's doing where, if you can get it to go where you want it to go, et cetera. And who will be working with you on that? Yes. So the, the next steps are exactly that. So we are working on the chemotaxis, the recruitment of it. So we have this one model or th- this one model in which we can found the presence of the neutrophil and we have now a couple different ways to enrich for those neutrophils and get larger numbers of them. But the idea of endogenously being able to manipulate them without having to inject them into people, um, understanding how they're recruited out of the bone marrow and getting them into circulation, that's, that's a big area of focus. And then another big area of focus is the translatability. How does this work in other models of neuronal injury? So is this something that works in stroke? Is this something that works in a neurodegenerative disease such as Alzheimer's? Is this a unique thing or is this something that can be broadly applied? And so those are really the questions that we have. And so the paper came out and a colleagues here, Dr. Arnold and Dr. Kolb in neurology who work in neurodegenerative diseases, uh, we've discussed the idea of how we could partner together to look at these neutrophils in their models. Additionally, in here at Ohio State, uh, Dr. Segal, who was my mentor, is now the chair here at Ohio State. And in working with collaboration in his lab, we're looking at how these neutrophils affect multiple sclerosis and mouse animal models of multiple sclerosis. Do they, are they able to uh, protect against demyelinating injuries and things like that? Yeah. So you have a lot of work ahead of you and it sounds really exciting. So it sounds like you'll kind of keep things in-house at Ohio State for a while. Would you guys be interested in conversations with people who are looking at other autoimmune type diseases like type 1 diabetes? I mean, scientists? Yeah. So we've had a couple. Dr. Segal is the corresponding author. And so he's been in contact with people who have been interested in trying to cross over into other autoimmune diseases. I think the similarities between something like diabetes and the peripheral neuropathy that occurs 
from that state is something similar to the neurodegenerative states that we worry about in you know, primary neurologic diseases. And so if we're able to find similarities, those are the types of mechanisms that might translate across from one group to another. Yeah. Right? Cross-pollination. That yeah. sounds great. And so, yeah. And that, that's, it actually brings up a really, uh, another really good point that is we want to translate this to humans and uh, no one's described these neutrophils in humans. Uh, and so we have started to partner with people to get blood so that we can look for it. But there was one group in which they looked in, in lupus and they found a immature circulating neutrophil that was embedded in a monocyte population. And they, uh, and so they were like, well, that's kind of odd that there's a, an, a neutrophil in the monocyte population where we wouldn't expect it. They hypothesized that it was contributing to lupus pathogenesis, but um, that might be an early indication that these cells might be out there in other autoimmune inflammatory diseases. Yeah. Now, very interesting. And I, we spoke, um, I think, as I referenced, we spoke with the Johns Hopkins group who recently discovered the X cell, which is a hybrid beta, a B and T cell. And that was sort of unusual. And now you guys are characterizing another type of a neutrophil that's unusual as well. And trying to dis discern, you know, what these non-classical blood cells are or white blood cells are doing. So I think it, you know, and I guess we can do, give a shout out to the advances of technology to help that that have helped with this, right? Yeah. So a lot of this work requires the new technology that we have. So the identification of a subset of cells that is unique was done by both classical methods and new technology. And so we did things like cytospins spins where we just visually looked at the cells and said they look different. But then we did um, high parameter flow cytometry to look at many different markers on the cell surface. And then ultimately we moved on to single cell RNA-seq. And there is an explosion of literature since the uh, invention of single cell RNA-seq. And it turns out that our, at the transcriptome level, cells are far more diverse than previously described. And, um, that is really one of the things that helped us really define this subset was being able to get at it um, both from a detailed proteomics perspective and a single cell trilogy in all kinds of different diseases and models and uh, conditions. Yeah, I do think that single cell RNA-seq has really blown the lid off uh, how far people can understand what the cell's identities are and how those identities sort of change as they undergo environmental stress or, you know, whatever it is they're experiencing. So very cool. I really am kind of interested in your idea. It'll be interesting to see if, if people uh, reach out to you from the type 1 diabetes community, because wouldn't it be cool to look at, to, to profile, like you just said, the, the human blood of a T1D patient like they did in lupus and sort of characterize using this more careful method, characterize the, um, the white blood cell profile. So yeah, that could be a very cool experiment for some postdoc out there to start. <laughs> so. Absolutely. There are always more ideas for, for a, a young starting uh, postdoc who's looking to explore something new. Speaking of which, do you guys at there in Ohio, do you, do you have room for, for postdocs and uh, you know, early career scientists? In general, yes. Um, <laughs> in, in my laboratory at the moment, I do not. 
So it is unfortunate that I'm, I'm not currently at a state where I'm ready to take on another lab member. Um, so most of my work comes through collaborating with others and connecting with other established people. I don't quite have the funding yet to uh, expand the, the size of my laboratory. Well, if anyone's interested, maybe they could reach out and, and talk to you about other alternatives over there at Ohio State because it seems like there's a lot of interesting work going on. And I just wanted to give one more shout out to your paper, a new neutrophil subset promotes CNS neuron survival and axon regeneration, nature immunology, 2020, October 26, actually. And um, encourage people to take a, a deep dive into it and look at it carefully. It's a really, a really interesting paper. Thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for highlighting my paper. This, is, this has been great. I, I'm glad that people are interested in the work that we did. Yeah, I think so. We'll keep an eye on things. It's going to be, I think this will be really interesting to see where it goes. So thanks. Bye-bye.